The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today is part two of a very different type of Flight Deck episode, and if the length of the episode didn't already clue you in, uh, then the rest of this will. This is a continuation of a celestial storytelling adventure began in the previous episode using a game called Before There Were Stars, where you make up a mythology based on constellations. I'm going to warn you now, if you don't listen to part one before listening to this episode, you will be lost. We don't go over the rules again, and we're picking up the stories right in the middle. So if you haven't yet listened to part one, or if it's been a while, head back an episode and hear that one before moving on to today's episode. I'm again joined by educators, storytellers, and game publishers extraordinaire Natalie Copeland, Ricky Coates, Cassandra Y, Kyle Doan, and Kurt Covert. Like before, this is audio of a playthrough of the game before there were stars, so I've edited out some of the more gamey bits to keep an already long episode as streamlined as possible, so don't use this as an exact guide on how to play the game either though the rules are honestly very, very simple. And with all the people joining from all over the world virtually to participate, I'll once again advise that you listen to this episode with headphones, simply because the different storytellers have different audio setups. Did a lot of work in editing to balance everyone's sound out, but headphones will probably make it a little bit smoother. That said, it's relatively minor, and I think the quality of the storytelling more than makes up for the slight differences in audio feeds. Now, as this episode starts, we were on a midpoint break, and we were just chatting a little bit more about what everyone does in their science education careers. So you'll first hear Cassandra talking a little bit more about her story. And then Natalie will share what she does at the Museum of Flight and Beyond before we jump right into part three of our stories. Previously on the Flight Deck. Before There Were Stars is a storytelling game, and players are going to take turns telling the mythic story of their people. Imagine yourself as an ancient lore giver sitting around the fire, looking up into the night sky, being inspired by the constellations. In the beginning, there was a blue and green planet spinning gently in the sky. In the beginning, there was the mother. She, of course, became quite hungry. The eye stared into the void until one day a voice came. The voice whispered at the eye, wouldn't it feel really good to close your eye? In the beginning, it was all written. Everyone's destiny was in the book. In the beginning, the comet took its place as the sun above our world. In the beginning, there were two sisters, the ocean and the fire. And Fox looked in wonder as the world began to be peopled by all the animals of this land. And so Re chose one of the rocky worlds that was hers to eat, and she split her soul in two and left one half behind as her brother, Ray. The spider wove together different blades of grass, they watched arithmetic started forming in their mind. The sword sliced into the book, scattering bits of the story throughout the cosmos. But we did not develop natural defenses, and the sun clawed at our skin. The elements wore at us and made it hard to survive. So the people who served the ocean and the people who served fire 
realized that they were both necessary, both the fire and the water, for them to build a life together. And now, the conclusion. I guess I'm, I'm, I, I, you could say I'm a bit of a dreamer, uh, which I am. When I was a kid, I always wanted to work for NASA, and, and, and I come from a, 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 a rundown, uh, a non-working class background. Uh, of the depression of the 80s. Uh, Reagan was bad, you've not met Mrs. Thatcher. And um, so I grew up on a state where very little was expected of us. And I always wanted to work for NASA. It was, oh, bless. You know, that idea that because you were working class, you, you, you had to stay within the bubble which you were put. I love telling children that when I was seven, I wanted to work for NASA. And now I do. And I just love that. I just love going back to kids in the communities that I grew up in and say, Nobody has the right to tell you what you can do. Nobody has the right to limit for you who you are and what you can achieve. And that's really important with some of the communities I work for, that they have so little available to them. That to say, you do not need to be constrained by what other people have put you in. Yeah. How about you, Natalie? Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your work? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I've gone into this a little bit on the podcast before, so I'll kind of do a little bit of a refresher. Uh, I'm a museum educator at the Museum of Flight, which means that usually I'm doing a lot of on-site and outreach programs. I kind of specialize a little bit in our planetarium system, but I do a little bit of everything. Uh, usually that means going out to places, but uh, of course with COVID, that's been a little bit different recently. We just wrapped up doing the Boeing Academy for STEM learning at home for the summer, which was just a breakneck uh, putting together 12 weeks of camp. It was uh, all online. It was pretty intense. And I've been running online planetarium programs all summer as well, uh, with a little bit of help from our friends at Digitalis, so <laughs> Kyle <laughs> and our friend Dave, um, has they've helped us uh, set up our planetarium studio, so we're now doing planetarium shows there as well. Um, so I also work with Digitalis outside of the museum, going around uh, to different places with the, with Kyle and our assorted other friends. <laughs> and I also work in, in science theater outside of the uh, my my day jobs so um i really like the capacity that theater has specifically for storytelling and i kind of feel like uh, science itself is really just really advanced storytelling um <laughs> uh, we have a picture of the world and we explain it using the best tools that we have available to us. And we ask questions as to why this thing happens. And then we investigate them. And then we tell that story. And, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of talk in the world of like, well, you know, this, this group's worldview can't be right because not everybody's worldview can be right. And there's, there's a lot of that in science as well <laughs> of like, well, but this thing can't be right because we discovered that this is right instead. And um, I think this might get a little metaphysical, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of room for a lot of it um, in that you know, like there's there's so many beautiful stories from around the world that all draw on many of the same archetypes. And at our roots, a lot of us believe very similar things for whatever reason. And science, you know, is going to keep researching and finding these these new versions of the story to tell. But eventually, you know, like who knows if we'll ever know everything. Hopefully we won't. I'd like to think that there's maybe some mystery left out there us to keep discovering <laughs> but um I feel like theater definitely gives uh the ability to kind of give an interesting lens on that topic and, and reintroduce these stories and archetypes to the discoveries that we are uh that we're constantly making like I I, I have a, a show that has not been quite mounted but has been mounted in a, a couple of different readings all about the the nature of time and uh, it's, uh, I think, the best example that I have for storytelling. It's a, it's a story about a mouse and a cedar tree who tell each other stories 
about this big theoretical concept that is time, just using stories from their own lives in the forest. Thank you, Natalie. And it looks like everyone's back. So, Kurt, back over to you. All right. So, um, our third chapter, then, is um, a great hero of our people is going to emerge. And we'll hear their epic tale. Um, I've already put out the next constellations for everyone. So, uh, this time, Ricky is going to be starting us by drafting cards first. Uh, Ricky, the cards on the table are now the mountain, lightning, clay, the father, and the rose. Uh, I actually will be taking the mountain. Perfect. Okay. Natalie, replacing that is the hand. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. I will take a uh, clay. Cassandra took the dog. And I'm going to take the father. And I am going to I'm going to take the desert. Uh yeah, I think I'll just take the seed. I will take the hand. Take my hand. <laughs> I'll take uh, the cloak. I'll go for lightning. I'll take the fish. I am going to take the poison. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> I just want to comment on the art here. The uh, the skull looks very Darth Vader esque to me. That's interesting. <laughs> All right, this is Kyle. We are rolling. And let's see what we have. Um, you got that skull if you want it. I, yeah, you know, because you said that, I have to now. <laughs> well, you well, have to. <laughs> I have to, yeah. <laughs> I read the contract. <laughs> so does everyone have two for this round? Ricky, did you get two? <laughs> yes, I have two. I have the mountain and the hand. Okay. All right. In which case, we are ready for our third chapter, which is a great hero emerging for our people. So, Ricky, whenever you're ready. Sure. Uh, to remind everyone, uh, the cards that I started with were the eye and the liar. The last round were the was the spy and the spider. And this round is the mountain in the hand. We heard them before we saw them. <laughs> it was a clatter of voices that seemed to rise above the mountains. And they rose for days. For days, we just couldn't quite understand what the noise was until suddenly we saw them pouring over the mountains on horseback, brandishing their weapons and torches. They came into our city burning, burning everything. They seemed incredibly offended by our library, all of our books, all of the knowledge that we had written down to pass on from age to age seemed to be to them the most horrid thing that they had ever seen. And they burnt and they killed and they raided every village that they came through until we were down to one last library. All of our people surrounded the library and begged and pleaded with the raiders, please, 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 this is the last of the knowledge of our people, do not take it. But their leader stepped forward. He raised his bow with the flaming torch on it and released it onto the building. We watched as the flames started taking it over, knowing that there was nothing that we could do. Until... She stepped forward. She was just a quiet girl. No one had ever really paid her much notice until now. And she stepped forward and saw that leader. Tears were flooding her face as she looked at him. But she reached out her hand and she touched his shoulder. And that's when we all realized 
he couldn't see. We looked around and none of them, all of their eyes were just glazed over. And she grabbed his hand. And with that gentle touch, he started kneeling before her. And she placed her hands over his eyes and started rubbing them in a clockwise fashion and then a counterclockwise fashion in ways that we had known would massage sight back into his eyes. And when he looked up, he saw her. And the voices of his people slowed down and stopped. And for the first time, we all saw each other for who we were. One people on this world. Okay, so Natalie, when you're ready. So this is Natalie again. And I originally had um, the mother and the famine, rainbow and river. And now I have clay and the cloak. As we remember, Ray and Re uh, were two parts of the same soul. And they were meant to continue shining in the sky together. But with only half a soul, it becomes extremely tiring. So Ray became very tired. <laughs> And uh, said, I, I, can, I can just no longer do this. I, I need to take a little bit of, of a nap. And Re said, okay, well, you can do that. And she kept on doing her thing down on this world. But every time that Ray would take a nap, deep discord came over the land. There was fighting. There were liars. There were thieves. And rediscovered <laughs> that the only way that she could ensure that everything was peaceful among all of her people of the world was that she would have to take the watch of night and wear the cloak of night and become the moon. So she created a people out of clay and she breathed life into them. And this first hero made of clay originally was named Lyra. And she laid the charge until Ira. She said, all right, it's your charge to protect these people while I'm in the sky and make sure that they are all protected under the watch of both sun and moon, uh, both day and night. Now, uh, Re no longer walks among us, but still watches over us with Ray, and it is up to the people, uh, her descendants, to be the heroes and make sure that everyone keeps the peace. Okay, Cassandra, you're on deck next then? Thank you. Okay, so I have uh, the fox, the moon, the horse, and the bridge, and I've just picked out the dog and lightning. In the beginning, the fox woke to see the land around him and and the light of the moon above him. And he looked through the moonlight, the light of the moon, and he looked and he looked and he saw all the animals that shared the land with him. There was the badger, black and white stripes. There was the rabbit with his eyes white. There was the leap and the flash of the deer. And then as Fox raised himself and began to walk across the damp, damp earth, he saw a shadowy form of the forest. And out of the shadows came a shape. And the light of the moon lit the shape in his horse. And horse looked at Fox, and Fox looked at horse, and they both looked up at the moon. And at first, all was well. On that very first night, all of the animals, they frolicked in the cool, damp air. But as the night passed and another night began, there was less light of the moon. For the moon began to shrink smaller and smaller, or so it seemed to them, until one night there was no light at all. 
And then the animals looked around them and thought, how will we survive if the light is gone? Who will bring it back? I will, said the deer, and the deer leapt to the sky, but missed. I will, said the badger, and the badger leapt up and missed. I will, I will, said the rabbit, and the rabbit hopped and hopped and threw herself up into the air. I will, said the horse, and the horse ran and ran and galloped and galloped, streaking across the earth, and then with one almost leap, he leapt up. And like the rest, he missed and came back down again. Uh, uh, well, 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 was it a little boy's... Um, I think it might be my turn next. It was the little dog. And the little dog's bright little eyes looked at everybody else and said, okay, I'll go for the light then. Okay, okay. Come on, dog, you can do it. Okay, okay. I can't jump very high. No worries, no worries, you can do it. Come on, dog, come on, dog. And all of the animals kept saying, come on, dog, come on, dog. That's your cue, everybody, I need your help. Come on, dog. Come on, dog. Come on, you can do it. And the dog looked at all the animals and all the animals were looking at the dog. And the dog, he took a deep breath and breath and, and he left. And at that very moment, there was a streak of light, lightning, and lightning crashed into the dog. And the animals screamed. And the dog burned. And there, in his place, was the sun. Wow. Very cool. Thank you for your help. All right, Sean. <laughs> All right. You got a tough seat over there, Sean. <laughs> so in the previous rounds, I had drawn uh, the fire in the ocean, then the anvil in the volcano, and then uh, the father and the fish are what I drew for this round. Things were peaceful for a time between those who served the ocean and those who served the fire. And our people multiplied, some living on the land that continued to grow as the fire staked more of a claim, and some continued to live and float on the ocean, eating the fish and the bounty of the sea. And things were peaceful between the two for a time. Until one day, the father of the two sisters of the fire and the ocean returned and told the sisters, only one of you can inherit my power. In jealousy of each other, the fire and the ocean began a great combat, the fire leaping towards the surface, bursting through in volcanoes that were far more powerful than before, to the point that they destroyed some of the people who'd settled on them. And the ocean roiled with hurricanes and weather and wind and rain, sending the boats flinging this way and that, some being dashed on the shore, some just unable to take the strain and destroying some of the people. And this went on for a time, and the, the people began to become more and more afraid as more and more of them fell to the two sisters. This was, of course, until one day when the girl who had accidentally dropped her tool hot off the forge into the water and found that the tool had become stronger as a result, cried out to both sisters, holding up the tool, the product of both the ocean and the fire together and beseech them, showing them what can happen, that even if only one could inherit, that if they could find their power to work together, perhaps they could, even with one inheriting, find a way to share the power the way the people had found a way to share the bounty of both the fire and the ocean. And the sisters listened, and the storms waned, the volcanoes calmed, but the surface of the earth had changed. No longer at that point were there small islands created from these volcanoes, but now great tracts of land had been forged out of this conflict. All right. So 
Let's see. Kurt's story had begun with the comet and the hurricane. Then the bear and the demon made the scene. And now I've got poison and the desert. The gift of the sun had come with the land and the, the rising of our people on the earth. But too much of a good thing um, is seldom a good thing. The, the poison of the rays of the sun continued to wear at the creatures that lived upon the earth. It became too intense over time. So what had first given rise to grasses and trees had started to shrivel them. Where the waters had been full of life, they started to become stagnant. Where shelter at one point was enough, now thirst became more of an issue. The waters started to recede. There was simply too much sun, and all of the creatures of the world became very concerned. So once again, they ventured to see the cave bear. The cave bear had helped them once before, and they sought his wisdom again. The cave bear knew what would to have to be done. And waking him from his slumber, he ambled out of his cave and diminished himself, shrinking, so that a part of himself could lumber up into the heavens. And there, using his mighty paws, he pawed and clawed at the world and set it in motion, turning it upon itself so that the rays of the sun would fall on different parts of the world at different times. It set the waters into motion, creating tides. It set the skies in motion, so that water would pass from, from the oceans to the sky and back to the earth. And all of these things brought the, our world into balance. But that aspect of the bear had not returned. That aspect that he gave of himself was a sacrifice to us. Okay, over to Kyle. Lots has uh, happened in our forest in the belly of the whale since last time we were there. <laughs> the... Uh, the forest, of course, had consciousness because it was part of the original story. And in some way or other, it, it realized that it couldn't just keep growing and growing inside the whale. There had to be change. There had to be death and death's sister, the seed. As the forest matured, parts would die and new seeds would sprout right from the empty, dead husks that were left from the trees. Giant cedars started to form. Sometimes those seeds would land on the ground and new forms of life would come up, like philosophical mice. <laughs> who would climb up into the cedars. And this went on for a long time. First, the cedar thought it was the most important life, then the mouse, and eventually, as you might imagine, our own people came up from the seeds. And they knew that they were the most powerful. They knew that this was just for them. They found the rocks and smashed them and pulled out the iron and made weapons. They used the weapons to cut down the cedars to make books, which told of why they were the most important. They also split themselves up into different communities, some obviously more important than others. You had rulers all the way down 
to a group called the non-working class community. I'll charge you for that one. From this community, there was a little girl. She was little. She she was she wasn't particularly athletic or big or any noticeable special talents that anyone else told her, but she was curious. There was one cedar that was too strong for the human being's weapons to cut down. And this little girl, following a mouse at first and then following her own <laughs> curiosity, climbed up the giant cedar all the way up until the ground of the forest disappeared below her and she saw a light. She couldn't resist. She climbed all the way up to the top of the cedar and stretched out her hand into the light and touched it. Well, not the light itself, but there, there, there was like a hole where the light was streaming in from and, 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 and that hole felt fleshy under her fingers. And she pulled herself up and stood on top of the whale. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> All right. Thanks for the throwback to the, the sitter and the mouse. <laughs> yep. Master of callbacks, yeah. Kyle, you just went, and I think you're the last person to share about your own work. So why don't you talk a little bit about what you do when you're not making up constellation stories? Yeah, yeah. And actually, I, I also have a theater background as well. Prior to being a commercial crab fisherman, what? Uh, that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it was a little bit of a strange, and I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, as we're talking about all these uh, these story concepts, maybe my time commercial crab fishing was kind of my, my story time of being in the belly of the whale. And <laughs> uh, when my son came along was an inspiration to get out of that and, and to, to retool and relearn. Uh, he's now, he's now 23. So I've, I've been in the, uh, uh, non-formal education world for, for quite some time. Uh, one of the jobs that I had, I, I wrote the background material for a Nova television store, uh, series with Neil Tyson called, uh, origins. And it's ridiculous how I got that job because I was totally unqualified for it. I just kind of stumbled into it backwards. And at that point in my life, as an adult, I was working in the science museum, but I, I didn't know that the sun was a star. You know, I, I, I had supreme ignorance. And it's, it's taken me a while to learn the, the power of ignorance, of, of, of acknowledging my own ignorance. And I, I love this sort of game where we are uh, starting with the elements that we have and trying to figure out some kind of meaning. I kind of like Cassandra, I, I have a world vision. I've traveled all around the world. I've helped start, uh, took the first planetarium, uh, digital planetarium to East Africa. So I go back and forth to Kenya quite a bit. I worked in the planetarium world in England. I lived there for a couple of years. And I find the planetarium to be an incredible tool that meshes storytelling with visualization and also can give you a, a perspective away from the earth. So we're looking at stories, you know, if this were, if these were stars, we're, we would be on the earth looking out, but there's also a way to leave the earth and look back. And, the more people that we can have on this planet that share that perspective, I, I, I just idealistically starry-eyed idealist <laughs> here think that <laughs> that that we'll uh, get along better. We, we'll we'll know how to share our resources in a better way and share our stories. And stories of every single culture are are deep and important. Thanks, Kyle. Okay, Kurt, take us to the grand finale. All right, so we are now to the fourth chapter. And this is um, loosely called At the End of Days. <laughs> this is kind of looking forward to how what's in store for this culture. Um, 
what will it be? Will it be joyful? Will it be doom? Will it be, you know, who knows? But this is a this is a way to kind of tell how the world may conclude. So here we have new constellations, the judge. We have the castle, the candle, the grave. <laughs> Fitting. And the lion. And Natalie, uh, yes, Natalie, it's uh, your shot here. How about... Uh... <laughs> I, I kind of want to take a random one, as, as all of our apocalypses are, but I'm afraid that it'll come up with something that's not relevant to the story at all at this point. Well, you know <laughs> like what? The... It will instantly become relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Why don't we just take one from the top? What do we got? The dragon. Oh, my. Okay. Dragons and rainbows. <laughs> All righty. All right, Cassandra. So the judge, the castle, the candle, the grave, and the lion. Oh. I'm going to do the same as Nasty God. Can you take one off the top for me? And I'll go with that. You got it. The arrow. Mm. All right, Sean's turn. This is the most I've spoken about myself in the third person. <laughs> <I think laughs> <in my life. laughs> I'm going to go with the candle. And five, four. Yep. The wind is going to come right over here to me. Next card up will be the axe. I'm taking the axe. <laughs> <laughs> the next card up is the shield. Actually, I, I grabbed that by mistake, but you know what? I'll just take it. I'll take the grave. Yeah, let's take another random one. I've had good luck with oh, that. Oh, adventurous. I love it. <laughs> the scorpion. The scorpion. Okay. I'll take another random one as well. The house. Oh, wow. Can I change my mind? <laughs> <laughs> the obvious thing for me to go for is the tree. So I won't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to take a card here and uh, let's just see what we have. The chest. Um, I'm going to take the tree. You got it. Okay. So now everyone has all their final cards. And Natalie, you are going to start the storytelling round. Alrighty. So, as we all know, Re was very curious. But we also know that she comes from a people who are very hungry and eventually want to eat everything around them. It is said that Re is occupied for now, but just as it's easy to ignore one's hunger when one is very engrossed in a fantastic project, eventually that might change. The story says that at the end of days, the dark side of Ray, which is the fire, the dragon will come. And the dark side of Re, which is all of the land and the water, the dark side being the scorpion, and then the crabs and the crayfish and the lobsters, all the crustaceans will crawl out of the sea and crawl out of the desert and crawl across the land. And together, the dragons and the scorpions and all of the darker creatures of the land will begin to eat. And they are the ones who are going to begin digesting this world for Ray and Re as they begin to digest their whole patch of this part of the cosmos. And eventually, when they are done eating, they will be so full that they will explode. And there will be 
a new mother. That's what I got. That's great. Great. Oh, I'm going to go have an existential crisis now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cassandra, whenever you're ready. And the animals looked up at the sky in awe and wonder as the sun's light filled their, their vision. But where was the dog? Had he gone? Had he become something else? Or was he living there? inside that hall of fire. The animals did not know, but they hoped so, that there would be a little house up there on that burning ball of fire where the dogs still breathe and the dogs still live. And of course, all of this was long ago, long ago in the land where I was born. And of course, in time, the people came and the story was passed on and passed on to them. And of course, many of them just believe it is a story. And they smile when they hear it told to their children at night. But they say, if you go back to the forest, back to the grasslands where this story began, you might see the fox and the horse looking up at the sky, waiting, waiting, to the very end of the day. They wait, hoping that one day, like an arrow falling, the dog will come home again. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Okay, Sean. All right, in the past couple of rounds, I'd had the father, the fish, the anvil, the volcano, fire, the ocean, adding the candle and the castle. We know how it will end, or we think we know. We worry that if the ocean rises faster than we can compensate that it will consume the land where so many of us have begun living. We worry that if the fire becomes too powerful, it will destroy the very land that it created. Or if the fire leaves altogether, if it ever burns out, then what will happen to our planet? And so we have the castle as a reminder the moat outside the castle reminding us of the ocean and the water and inside the castle the candle burns so that even if all the other fire in the earth goes out we still have one remaining flame now of this future the ocean levels rising and the fires exploding and receding we know that we have some control over this, even though some choose to ignore that reality. <laughs> and so we work as our forebearers did, as they combine the power of the ocean and the fire together to create solutions for a better future for them. We know that we can't stop this future altogether, and one day the fire or the ocean will win. But until then, we remember. Okay, so I'm following up my story of the the bear with the new cards, the judge and the wind. We still have hurricanes. There are still deserts. There are poisons on the earth, and there are there are still demons, but not for long. There are things that we can endure and move past into happier times. Because the wisdom of the bear was that change is necessary. In change is balance and growth. And when the bear, even today, seems to feel that change is once again due, 
he blows the winds of change over the earth. And things turn and change. And balance is maintained, as it will be ever. <sighs> okay, so Kyle. Standing on top of the whale. <laughs> she has seen beyond what anyone else, any of our people have seen. She saw worlds of water and fire. She saw worlds of maelstroms and golden orbs. She saw binary split souls orbiting each other until they explode. She saw webs of light and darkness. She saw connections. She saw the stories of the universe and kept them in her heart, deep inside of her chest. She was the girl who saw beyond. She didn't need to climb down the tree. She could float now. She, she just stepped into the blowhole of the whale and descended on the beam of light down to her people to share the story that there is something beyond the whale. They didn't even know they were inside of the whale. <laughs> she had all of these things to share. <laughs> and some came up to her and called her the, the girl who saw beyond. But the keepers of the book were powerful. And they bound her. And they gagged her and they wouldn't let her speak. And they tied her in front of the cedar that she had climbed. And they took the great axe that they had just forged, yeah. finally powerful enough to fell the cedar and prevent <gasps> anyone from seeing beyond. No. Every whack. <gasps> She felt her chest get smaller. She felt the stories disappear. Every whack. She felt tinier and tinier and tinier. And she didn't know whether it was her own scream or the sound of the cedar breaking and falling finally. She looked at the little mouse, the only one who stayed by her side. And she just said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She stood up in a rage and grabbed the axe and threw it up into the sky. The axe spun, chopping up the whale, chopping down the forest, chopping all the people, and slicing the book into innumerable parts that scattered throughout the cosmos. Come full circle. My heart is not okay. That's where you left it. Oh my God. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. My wow. tears are real. Oh. <laughs> wow. Okay. So when are you writing the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's kind of, I guess there's kind of a sequel implied, right? Yeah, there is. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Ricky. All right. We're ending with the grave in the tree. <sighs> Come closer, my child. Keep me warm. I've told you all these stories because 
And all of us, we've known. We've known this time has come. We knew that eventually all who remembered the teachings of the spider would die. All who ever held out hands and touched each other, massaged sight into each other's eyes, they would die as well. And now it's you and me beneath the cedar tree. And you hear it, don't you? You hear the voice. It calls to me at night, telling me how nice it would be to take an axe, chop down this tree and burn it for warmth. The last tree on earth. Because it is cold. It is very cold. But we should remember that voice is the reason we're here. So even if we do what it asks, there will be something after us. We have to remember that there's always birth in the choices that we make that may not seem right, that may seem selfish. Although it's brought us to here, maybe we were created out of selfishness and to selfishness we will go. Or maybe there is a sight beyond what we can see, a knowing that we can only reach for. But for now, cuddle up close. And don't close your eyes until you have to. Well, you guys are amazing storytellers. <laughs> yeah, I want to... Yeah. Yay, everyone! <laughs> well, and actually... This is the part of the game that's called the appreciation phase. Um, and what I'll do, I'll start off and I just want to highlight one or two things that I heard that just really stuck with me that either they were just beautiful, they created imagery, mention, mention them for whatever reasons um, that seem right. Um, so I'm just going to start um, and I'm going to start with, with Ricky. Um, Ricky, one of the things I noticed in your story is that there were these lovely vignettes um, that started with the eye just kind of gazing, you know, into the void. The the story you told about the spider and the frustration of the the web, you know, continually coming down, and then the, all of these just they were just beautiful little almost insular stories, and they did connect, but they were moments unto themselves and, and I, I could really visualize them very, very well. Um, Thank you, Natalie. Um, one of the things that I, I loved about your story and it came full circle was this idea that the, the mother were, were, were sons that would explode and create new life. I just thought that was that was just poetry. I, I just loved the, the imagery and the symbolism in that and how, how that eventually came back to then, you know, renew the, the, the next phase was, I thought, you know, just very fitting therefore. So um, really great job. Thanks. And uh, Kyle, why don't you mention a couple of things? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to talk to Cassandra. I loved your use of the including the audience in the story mm. um it's a way of bringing people in and and i think that's that's a, important to have people feel like they're participating in what's happening and and they'll probably remember more because they helped the dog <laughs> 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 they helped the hero I, I love that i love that and I, well, I actually, I'm going to, I'm going to jump out of, out of game a little bit, just to, Kurt, to give you uh, some thanks. This is, this is an amazing game. I, I have never seen anything quite like this before. Uh, I love the way that uh, these tools are given for people to be able to kind of dig deep into creating their own mythology. Maybe that's something that we don't have as a Western culture so much. Uh, it is a 
really deep um, mythology to hang our dreams on. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, and and yet it's still part of all of us. I think it's part of being mm-hmm. human. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ricky, what were some of the things that stood out to you? Uh, Sean, I really liked the tension between the ocean and the fire. Yeah. Like, that was consistent in all of your story. It really built this great conflict for me uh, that really paid off with the, with the, 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 the ominous castle imagery at the end. <laughs> so thank you for that. Thank you. Um, and Kurt, likewise, I felt like th- I felt very uh, viscerally touched by your imagery of the sun. Um, because you never like I, I looking at your cards like you you never really had the sun. But for me, if I were to to describe what I felt listening to your story, it was the the image of the sun as poison on my skin, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and in this day and age, when it feels like uh, we are losing grasp of like nature itself is no longer a warm and comfortable place to be out in anymore. Thanks to us. But it, it, it also, I don't know. I, I connected really, really deeply with that. So thank you. All right, Natalie, what are some of the things that popped out to you? Well, one of the things that really stuck out to me, and this was from everyone is just the amount of, emotion that people were able to give for these these cards that just came to you that just entered your world and your mythology like uh you know i'm i'm a playwright but i'm definitely a ruminator like i i'm not an improviser i feel like uh whenever i have an idea that comes to me i have to you know write it down and then put it in 17 different permutations before i finally find <laughs> the way that it actually fits together <laughs> and that makes improv really stressful for me actually <laughs> and storytelling i feel like if I, if I don't you know do it j- the way i want to the first time then it's not good and and i felt like um everybody when we got to them was able to create and and speak something just beautiful into life like just I, yeah i i could i could go to every single person and say the exact same thing about this i think the way that the game is is designed really um really helps with that. Uh, Were there any images, uh, that, any images from people's stories that you really sort of want to highlight? Oh, yes, <laughs> definitely. This, this image of this f- sliding back down the whale's blowhole and oh. <laughs> then <laughs> being tied at this, this tree. I felt like this in this moment, this, tree came to represent like my my entire world as well and when it started being chopped i was oh i i i connected i heard you i heard you gasping over there (laughs) yeah Yeah. i mean like trees are part of like my own personal mythology (laughs) and so it was nice to branch out of that but it was really nice to hear that in other people's stories as well yeah, it was a very dramatic end, and I, I, I certainly felt the the visceral impact of that. And you did a great job of of bringing that to the table. Oh, thanks. Hmm. All right, Cassandra, what uh, what appealed to you? I think I I loved the image of uh, the girl standing on the whale, uh, and mm. the of the one who'd gone beyond. And I think. And, and then the terrible, and, and then what would happen to her being tied and, and chopped. And I had tears in my eyes. And I thought, that so rarely happens in improvised storytelling. You know, and I think I, I struggle with a lot of improvised storytelling. It's very fluffy. It's, 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 kind of, it's kind of jolly and quite funny. And, and actually, there's no light and shade. And so I loved the light and shade in that image of her going beyond and then being then being butchered for it, which was just, oh, my God. And um, and then then I think Ricky was it with a cuddle up close, and it was like, oh, no, I'm going to cry again. No, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm standing in the wild and the whole world and then cuddle up close. Maybe we'll survive. Maybe not. And I just, so I think being, the, the depth of being moved was not what I expected. I have to confess when someone asked me to do this, I was initially very resistant because I was like, 
nah, improvisational storytelling doesn't really do it for me. It's a bit fluff. But I, I like this. I, I, I like this. And, and the one thing I would say to the makers of this, besides thank you, is that when, when I worked with Lynn, one of the things I said to her, Lynn, Lynn, why are there no star stories in, 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 in Britain? We have stories about them. We don't have any about the stars. Why is that? And Lynn said, oh, because of fog. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking of what what star story would I make, and I just thought it was just a lovely way of saying, "Look, it! I've made one. See, look, I've made one." And I just think that's lovely to say to children, "You can you can make your own story about your own land, whatever that is." Mm-hmm. And I and I and I that 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 moved me quite a lot to have that experience. So it's a beautiful idea. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. So, Sean, uh, I want to give one to to Natalie. Just the the props of you've mentioned before that your improvising is not your forte, and yet I think you took the most blind cards out of everybody, <laughs> and and you just you you wove them in so well. Uh, the rainbow was a blind card. The scorpion, the dragon. I th- think maybe the cloak. I just the improvising and, and weaving in of these elements just really stuck out to me, uh, especially with the vividness of the, the consuming of nothing, essentially mm, yeah. kind of this, this mm. the like, kind of a black hole sort of feel like I could, I could, I could hear the science coming through <laughs> without it being like, without it being too sciencey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Cassandra, I just, I said it before, but your use of repetition, I really, really appreciated mm-hmm. um, as a as a as a storytelling device. It's something that we because in our culture, we can write things down or we can hit the rewind. We don't do repeat quite as much anymore uh, at all. In fact, repeating is probably seen as a, a sign of weak storytelling in a film. Too much repetition. Right. But but in this kind of oral tradition, it really came through and engaging me. And there was something you said. I don't remember exactly what it was, but you had a sentence that had like iambic pentameter cadence. And I was just like so impressed. <laughs> I was so impressed. I'm like, wow, she came up with that off the top of her head. Uh, I, I didn't write down what it was, but it, it just stuck with me. The, the rhythm of the sentence itself. I was like, wow, just as a linguistic example of a good sentence and the way it was expressed just really stuck with me. Yeah, I just wanted to thank everybody. Uh, Kurt, Cassandra, Ricky, Natalie, and Kyle. Thank you all for joining us and telling this stories together. It was so you, much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. A special thanks to the donors, people who have given to the podcast. You are helping keep this podcast and the Museum of Flight going. You can learn more about giving to the podcast at the show notes. I'll put a link down there. I hope you have enjoyed the stories as much as we enjoyed making them up. In case you're wondering, this was not a sponsored episode or anything like that. I just genuinely like the game as an educational tool. And and I've even used it in museum education programs and just wanted to share the experience with you. You can get a copy of Before There Were Stars for yourself if you want to try it out. We do have it for sale in the Museum of Flight's online store. Buying there supports the museum. And as this episode drops, it's December, so I know you'll be in the thick of holiday shopping, so you can check out the gift guide while you're there as well. It's a great holiday gift or anytime gift. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The next episode, we'll be back to a more traditional conversational format for the podcast. Although I did get affirmative responses to the question I asked in the last episode, so as a result, at some point in the near future, I'll be putting together a bonus episode with all of our stories spliced together so that you can hear each person's story from beginning to end, and then on to the next person's story from beginning to end, and so on. I'll drop that maybe as a bonus episode or something in the near future. Probably not immediately, but maybe it will be, who knows. 
I've put links to the projects of our various storytellers in the show notes if you want to check out any of their work. And of course, at the Museum of Flight, we continue to offer engaging STEM and history-based education opportunities, which you can also find links to in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the episode on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You should also subscribe to the show to stay up to date on our latest episodes. You can contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>